wonder-working stars in the precious... Incredible as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. <laughs> You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. It was after dinner, and I went out for a walk in the pale autumn woods where my grandfather had disappeared seven years earlier. Oh, it's not as spooky as it sounds. Old people who live alone in the woods up here just disappear sometimes. It's not so hard to see why. You walk ten minutes out into those trees and you might never find your way back. You take a little fall and the three high school dropouts in the local PD won't ever find you. Odds are they'll barely try. Still, it's the sort of thing that makes you climb out of bed and get a glass of water if you think about it too much at night. Even with the old man gone, Aspen Cottage still felt like his place, and sometimes I just needed to get away from it. I think most of us, his descendants, felt uncomfortable with his memory, and that's why we'd put off the will reading all day, and the evening before. It was like the cottage had been a part of him, and the will was another part of him, and bringing the two together would trigger some kind of alchemical reaction, and there'd be a plume of smoke, and there he'd be curled up naked in the middle of the living room floor, alive again and as mean as ever. Not, uh, <laughs> not that he was necessarily dead. Just legally. Glancing back, as he might have done seven autumns earlier, I could only see trees and trees and trees, interleaved. Aspen Cottage was swallowed up by the Aspens. I turned back to the path, and the way ahead was identical to the one that lay behind it. It was almost as if the woods wanted you to disappear. Aspen Cottage was unimaginatively named. It stood in the middle of a quaking Aspen forest, and it was built out of that light silvery wood. Fire-resistant. In case the grits ever resort to arson, my grandfather used to say. He had been a lifelong Tory financier. For that same reason, the name was also inaccurate. The building had lost any right to be called a cottage, somewhere between the fourth bedroom and sixth bedroom. Its floor plan had bloated along with the family fortunes. Though as long as I could remember, the old man had lived there alone. It was twilight now, and the sky beyond the golden aspen leaves was yellow gold. A soft wind was blowing as I came to a hilltop overlooking the cottage and its little sliver of dark lake, and the woods around me were filled with a whisper of foliage. I'd been hoping the walk would improve my mood. It hadn't. As a child, I'd loved this forest, maybe because it was where I went to get away from the cottage and the dark, brooding pressure of my grandfather's presence. But something had changed. Maybe it was just me, but the woods no longer seemed like a place of reprieve. 
I felt that I was being... Not watched, per se, but noticed. And that it wasn't a friendly kind of noticing. Imagine a mosquito landing on your arm. You raise your hand and wait for a moment, until it's decided to stab you and can't pull out fast enough to escape when you swat it. Imagine that moment where it's already dead but doesn't know it yet, and you think to yourself, I have you now, you son of a bitch. That's what it felt like being in the woods that evening. It felt like being that mosquito. It felt like I could feel my grandfather's behemoth legacy moving underneath my feet, slowly as if breathing, or drifting on the gradual pulse of an ancient, hate-filled heart. I didn't care for the feeling. When I was a kid, Grandpa Colby had told me about how, when he was my age, half this forest had been clear-cut by Colby pulp and timber. It sounded proud. I'd been disgusted by the thought of my beautiful trees being ground into mush for particle board. But now, I found myself wishing that they'd finished the job. I hunched my shoulders, stabbed my hands into my pockets, and trudged back down toward the cottage, watching a blue curl of wood smoke rise from the chimney to haze greenly into the golden sky. The aspens trembled around me. A cold wind was blowing in the night. Inside, the other cousins had already broken into Grandpa Colby's stash of fifty-year-old scotch. Ellis had mixed his with cherry coke, mostly, I assumed, because he wanted someone to say something about it. Graham, of course, was taking his neat, with only a drop of spring water to enhance the flavor. Lindsay took hers on the rocks, which was what I would have done most of the time. Instead, I just cracked a beer. What are you, pregnant? said Ellis, killing his drink. It left a dark, sugary stain around the thin lips he'd inherited from the old man. Graham made a disgusted noise, but since he was sitting as far as possible from Ellis, it was quiet enough that only I was able to hear it over our other cousin's booming voice. I just don't feel like getting drunk tonight, I said. Why, you okay? said Lindsay. Oh, is the widow baby hung over from yesterday? said Ellis. Graham, who would never be crass enough to laugh at something Ellis said, still allowed himself a thin smile. He, after all, could hold his drink as only someone who shot gin with breakfast could. That was one of his inheritances from Grandpa Colby. No, I'm okay, I said to Lindsay, ignoring the others. Just in a weird mood. Artists, said Ellis. Graham didn't smile at that one. He didn't care to reinforce the idea that what I did counted as art. Then should we just get this over with? said Lindsay. Why are you in such a hurry? Alice belched. I'm not in a hurry, I just... Of course you are. You want to get your money and get out as soon as you can, so you can forget where the money comes from. Well, guess what? Oh, leave her alone, Alice, you bloated imbecile, said Graham. I drifted to the window as the three argued between themselves. Another night, and I might have jumped to Lindsay's defense or tried to play peacemaker, but I was tired and uneasy. It was dark outside already. That golden sky had burnt out like a light bulb. The light from the open window cast a soft glow through the pale trunks, now and again catching the golden flutter of a falling aspen leaf. There was a motion detector light above the window. It was too sensitive. It flicked on even though there was nothing moving outside, and blasted a white glare thirty feet out beyond the tree line. Triggered by the falling aspen leaves? It was the only explanation. All those trees, 
He'd have them clear-cut as much for the joy of destruction as the money. But they'd come right back. I started to laugh. The motion light went out on the other side of the window. My cousins stopped arguing and looked up at me. They all looked the same. The same wide jaw, the same thin lips and blue eyes. The same I'd seen reflected in the black glass a moment earlier. Identical. Like Aspen clones. What? said Ellis. What's so funny? He's clearly lost his mind, Graham muttered into his drink. I was just thinking about how he couldn't kill those trees he cut down, I said. Confused silence. The fuck are you talking about? said Ellis. Aspen trees, I said, gesturing at the thin trunks beyond the glass. They're not actually trees, you know. They're stems. This forest is actually a single living organism thousands of meters across and millions of kilograms. One of the biggest, oldest things alive. We're standing on the back of something that was probably born at the end of the last ice age. And it's still young. There's one of these in Colorado that's 80,000 years old, old enough to remember when there were three other species of human on the planet. And the old bastard just decided he had the right to try and kill it. Graham took another drink. Somebody's been watching Fern Gully. Lindsay giggled. I resisted the urge to punch Graham in the face. I wonder what the hell happened to him, said Ellis. Another momentary silence fell. Well, whatever it was, I said. He deserved it, didn't he? Oh, here we go, said Ellis, rolling his eyes. That's our grandfather, said Lindsay. Question for you, Graham, said Ellis. Who do you think's more annoying, Little Miss Perfect, or the guy who wants to get backdoored by Marx? If you ask me, it's a three-way tie, said Graham. Oh, come on, I said. We all know that he was a monster. Now that he's legally dead, can't we just be open about it? I think it's rude to talk about a dead person that way, said Lindsay. He wasn't a monster, he was a businessman, said Ellis. Our cousin thinks those two words mean the same thing, said Graham. What about what he did to Grandma? I said. Allegedly, said Ellis. Alleged by him. It was a different time. I'll tell the truth, Graham declared. All three of us turned to look at him. It was the first time this evening he'd used a tone of voice louder than a dry drawl. In the corner by the window where he sat, he was bathed in a cone of golden light by an ancient lamp. Outside, the motion detector light had flicked on again. But there was nothing out there but darkness and golden aspens. Graham took a deep pull from his glass before speaking. Our grandfather was a mean son of a bitch. He beat our grandmother, and he beat our parents, and he clear-cut native land, and his oil mines put enough carbon in the air to kill a dozen third-world countries. He'd have disowned me in a heartbeat if he thought even for a second I was queer. And I don't give a fuck about any of that. Graham, I... Lindsay started to speak, but he cut her off with a slashing gesture. Quiet, Lindsay, he said. His lips curled. The men are talking. Oh, fuck you, I said. Ellis guffawed. Graham turned his cold eyes, eyes so like our grandfather's, in my direction. Fuck me, he said. Well, if you feel so strongly about all this, cousin, then... Surely you won't take the old man's money. After all, it is blood money. 
I said nothing. Oh, what's that? Silence. So much for your left puritanical morality, I suppose. So what if I take the money? I'll do better things with it than you. The motion light flicked on. It had happened enough times that it drew all of our attention. Outside, the aspens quivered, glowing in the dark. The motion light flicked out. Graham turned back to me. I wish, for your sake, that I could believe that. But it doesn't matter. You're tainted by that money either way. If you take it, you're a hypocrite. If you leave it to us, you're a broke hypocrite. You want me to walk away so you get a bigger piece, I said. You actually think I might, don't you? Graham smiled and shook his head. I do think you're stupid enough, he said. But when I spoke up, I said I'd tell the truth. And that's all that I've done. He settled back into his chair. The motion light flicked on. Ellis chortled. Do shut up, you idiot, Graham told him. A lull drifted over the conversation, filled only by the sounds of Ellis enjoying my humiliation and cracking another bottle of fifty-year-old whiskey. I turned back to the window. It was strange how, after dark, the trees seemed to come right up to the window. Shall we read the will, then? said Lindsay. Her voice was quiet, with a little tremble to it. Oh, do go on, said Graham. The light flicked out as I turned back to the center of the room. Lindsay cracked the envelope. The will was to the point. There would be no funeral games, no Ottoman-style power struggle in the Seraglio. Just a quarter for each of us. A quarter of the properties, assets, and liquid capital. A quarter of the shares in Colby Energy Solutions, formerly Colby Oil and Gas, formerly Colby Pulp and Timber. And, just like that, I became one of the richest people in the country. I felt light. Just like that, I was free from the control of wealthy relatives. I was the wealthy relative. And then, I felt heavy. Heavy under the weight of fresh bloodstains on my hands. And then, the light flicked on again outside. And we were all taken aback for a moment. Too taken aback to scream because someone was standing on the other side of the glass, pressed right up against it, face to face. Did I say standing? No, that isn't quite right. A figure was suspended on the other side of the glass, like a marionette. The arms and legs hung at a strange angle from the body, unusually stiff. The clothes that hung from its frame were rotted and frayed from years out in the woods. All four of us rose slowly to our feet. We recognized that staring face, the wide jaw and thin mouth, even though the skin had gone woody and mummified over the bone. Our grandfather, old man Colby himself. Only, it wasn't quite him anymore, was it? He hung in utter silence on the other side of the glass, his head tilting slowly to the side, as if trying to get a better look at us. Though it was look 
the right word? It couldn't be. Those blue eyes of his had long since rotted out. In their place had grown twin orbs of something light and silvery gray. Did I recognize what it was in that moment? I only remember feeling a sudden urge to giggle hysterically. But then, our grandfather smiled, and that urge died away, for his teeth had all fallen out, replaced by two grayish, silvery, crushing mouthparts. He swayed back, trailing whitish strands from his ankles, and we all looked on, paralyzed like jacklet deer. And then, like a doll hurled by a child, our grandfather smashed through the living room window. Pain and pandemonium. Shards of glass ripped into me as I flung my arms in front of my face. A leathery hand threw me to the ground, and more glass crunched through my clothing as I rolled backwards. Lindsay was screaming. Graham and Ellis were shouting. The dead man made no sound. Though as I blinked through stinging blood, it seemed as though his yawning mouth belched forth the sound of aspen trees shaking in the wind. He seized Ellis and shoved him down into the roaring fireplace. My cousin screamed and black smoke flew up as the synthetic fibers of his shirt, the plastics, the petrotextiles, caught flame. Tongues of fire blackened my grandfather's hands, but they wouldn't burn. Fire-resistant, I thought, in case the grits resort to arson. But Ellis, oh, Ellis did burn. The three of us ran, fighting to get through the door all at once as our grandfather turned and lurched after, jerkily like a wooden puppet, trailing white strands that ran out through the shattered window. Graham made it through first and was gone down the hall. Lindsay screamed as she was dragged backwards, and I didn't turn back to see what happened to her. All I know is that her screams were cut off by a series of loud, wet sounds. I reached the front steps in time to see Graham slam the door of his SUV and start the engine. I pounded on the windows, screaming for him to let me in, but he ignored me, throwing the car into reverse and almost running me over as he fishtailed through the gravel drive and disappeared downhill in a flare of red taillights. I flung myself against the door of my own car and tried to wrench it open, but it was locked. I patted down my pockets. My keys were still inside. The trees all around me hissed, though I could not feel any breath of wind upon my skin. A pale figure stepped from the dark doorway of Aspen Cottage. I turned and ran into the woods. I heard thunking footsteps behind me, and I didn't dare look back. Thin starlight and a waning gibbous moon lit the silvery trunks with grayish light, and I ran as fast as I could, tripping in the deep loam and snarling roots to careen off those trunks, those stems of the titanic being underneath my feet. The sound of shaking leaves was so loud it almost drowned out the pounding of my heart, but I was grateful for any noise that covered the awful wooden footsteps behind me. Down one hill and up the next, gasping for breath and darkness, I widened my lead. I was faster, but how far could I run? At least I knew my way through these woods, I thought. I splashed through a cold and shallow stream. Just beyond the next hill, I'd be overlooking a curve in the road. A few minutes if I moved quickly. If I could just make it there, and if I was lucky enough for someone to be driving by. I stopped to catch my breath at the top of the next hill. The woods were thick. Surely he wouldn't be able to see me, whatever he was. A cloud drew over the moon, 
turning the aspen leaves above me from bright gold to bloody dim. The forest went dark, except for a single shimmer of red and white light hazing through the trees. Headlights. I plunged down through the trees, snapping branches, drew blood from my bare arms and face. I burst out onto the shoulder, shouting and waving my arms as the moon came out again, its light reflected painfully yellow from the golden bows that rose in chuckling ranks on every side. The headlights came from Graham's SUV. It had skidded out and smashed into the dense tree line across from me. I called after Graham. A snapped sapling stood in the middle of the road. The asphalt cracked and broken where it stuck up through the paving. It hadn't been there when we arrived on Friday night. Graham must have struck it and lost control of the vehicle. He was groaning inside the shattered driver's side window. I tore open the door and reached across to unbuckle the seatbelt. His head was lolling and there was a red gash across his brow. Come on, Graham, wake up. We need to get out of here. I thought I heard those thunking footsteps behind me as I tried to pull my cousin from the driver's seat. But he was caught on something, and when I tried to jerk him free, it wouldn't give. I looked back. It took a moment of blinking in the darkness to make out what he was caught on. White strands leading out the passenger window and into the rustling darkness of the trees, and leading into his wrist at the vein. And just as I realized my mistake, Graham's wooden arms closed around my neck and held me close. I screamed and tried to break free, but it would have taken a hatchet to get loose from that grip. I begged and pleaded for him to let me go, but all I could hear was the sound of shivering leaves and slow, clunking footsteps. The steps slowed and came to a halt. When I finally went limp, after a last desperate effort, I found my grandfather staring back down at me from featureless eyes made of silvery aspen wood. Please, I said. Please, I'm not like the rest of them. It isn't my fault. But he only stared down at me in silence as a second set of wooden footsteps neared. It was Lindsay, now trailing a white cluster of her own rootlets that led all the way back into the darkness. She was covered in blood, but I couldn't help but catch my breath, for slim white branches had thrust their way out of her flesh, and they were already in bloom, trailing feathery catkin flowers that caught the dim red glare of the taillights. And like Graham and my grandfather, her mouth only spoke the sound of hushing aspen leaves. This time, the sound came with an actual wind, and as its cool fingers brushed against my skin, the cottony white fluff lifted from her new blossoms and blew toward me in a cloud. It was around me like a blizzard before I could close my mouth, and I couldn't keep from inhaling it. And when I folded up on myself, coughing, each new Racking breath only drew more aspen seeds into my lungs. Graham's arms unlocked themselves, and by the time my coughing fit had passed and I was able to pick myself up from the gravel, he was gone, and so were Lindsay and my grandfather, and I was left alone with the silent trees, or with that huge, silent organism that had stood its lonely vigil down the thousands of years. I set off into the darkness at a run. Thirty-six hours later, a driver picked me up. 
and fourteen hours after that, I was home. My life changed after that. <laughs> what an understatement. You might as well say my grandfather's life changed after he vanished into the woods. No more arts for me. My cousin Shares gave me a controlling stake in the family firm. With it, I ran Colby into the ground. I wish I could say I did it for any reason but to save my skin. But I know now that isn't true. And so, here I am. As Graham would say, a broke hypocrite. A broken hypocrite. Why did the forest let me go? I don't think it really did. Aspens grow quickly when they have to, and though the doctors say there's nothing in the x-rays but the odd, dark, unexplainable spot, I sometimes lie awake at night, thinking I can feel the roots spread through me, more slowly than through Graham and Lindsay, but still inescapably. Sometimes I'll spot a moat of white fluff on the air and convince myself I'm flowering. And at night, sometimes, I think I hear it. The sound of aspens shaking in the distance. The Wrong Station is made possible by the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Consider visiting today at patreon.com slash thewrongstation. You can also support us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, or wherever it is that you listen to The Wrong Station. This week's episode, Blood in the Golden Aspens, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Botello. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Ilan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmid. You can subscribe to The Wrong Station on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, and any other of your favorite podcast services. You can follow The Wrong Station on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. You can also follow The Wrong Station creative team on Twitter at AEW Saxton, AJV Botello, and Jacob BRDS. And until next time, thank you for listening.